All right, all the way back in 2002, when Amber and I first started dating, we would have these incredibly long conversations on the phone. Anybody else remember that stage of dating life? I mean, I am not exaggerating when I say it was nothing for us to spend three hours every evening with a Nokia glued to the side of our face, okay? And we would talk about anything and everything we could possibly imagine. The irony is, I hate talking on the phone. Like, I think calling somebody is like the worst thing that you can do to them, okay? If you text me rather than call me, then I know you love me and want me to be happy. I'm just being real. Like, don't call me if it can be a text message. But I sure didn't mind talking to Amber. Now, early on, this conversation was like long, but if I'm real, it was a little bit shallow. Like we would spend all this time talking, running, like using up all our minutes. This is back when you had minutes, right? So anyway, we're using up all of our minutes, but the things we're talking about are like, what's your favorite color? And who's the most annoying character on Friends? It's Ross, by the way. We would just talk about all these really, really shallow things, right? So these days, we don't have three-hour-long phone conversations. We just don't do that anymore. You might be thinking to yourself, oh, that's so sad. Like, after two decades together, they just don't enjoy talking to one another anymore. I'm going to pray for our pastors because clearly they're struggling. They've fallen out of love. No, that's not true. We love each other now more than we ever have. Our conversations have definitely gotten shorter, but they have also gotten much deeper. See, the better you know someone the more you can communicate using fewer words. Are you with me? After 21 years together, we can communicate in a glance what used to take 15 minutes when we were dating. Are you with me? It's just like, I know what the side eye means by this point, okay? <laughs> I guess my point is this. Good communication doesn't hinge on the number of words spoken. Good communication does not hinge on the number of words that are spoken. In fact, sometimes the more words you speak, the less communication you actually have. I don't know if you've ever been a part of these conversations. Maybe they happen in your marriage. Maybe they happen at work. It's like people are talking, but it's like the more the talking goes on, the less we understand what one another is saying. Good communication doesn't hinge on the number of words spoken. Now, Jesus actually taught something along these lines when it comes to our prayer lives. See, what is true of us in our conversations with one another actually is true in our relationship with God. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter number six, verses seven through eight. He said this, when you pray, now let's pause for a sec, point out that he said, when you pray, not if you pray, when you pray, don't babble on and on as unbelievers do. Why? They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Jesus says, don't be like them because your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. I've said before that we tend to overcomplicate prayer, right? We think that we've got to use like the perfect words when we're praying, or we've got to go lock ourselves in a prayer closet for an hour in the morning in order to like pray in such a way that's going to get God to answer us. We think that we can figure if I just do it the right way, then I can almost guarantee an answer. But listen to me now, prayer is a conversation, not a formula. I don't care what that YouTube preacher told you. There is no three-step process to getting your prayers answered every single time. It doesn't exist. It's a conversation. It's not a formula. 
And so when we read Jesus' teachings on prayer, he never gives us formulas, but what he does do is he gives us principles, principles of communication, really. He gives us things to keep in mind as we have conversations with our Father in heaven, and that leads to more enjoyable prayers and, hey, even more um, uh, effective prayers. So in, in Matthew chapter number six, this passage that we just read this morning, the Savior reminds us of an important truth that we often forget, and that is short prayers can be powerful prayers. Do you realize that? Short prayers can be some of the most powerful prayers that we pray. In fact, if you go throughout the Bible, you would be shocked at how short the most dynamic and passionate and powerful prayers recorded in the scripture really are. We think they're long and they're full of like flowery language and all of these different things, but they're not. Almost always, they're one or two sentences long and they change the situations that they're spoken in. I want you to think for a moment about the prophet Elijah on the top of Mount Carmel. And so like in this uh, story from the Old Testament, the prophet of God named Elijah is having a showdown against the prophets of Baal, like a pagan God, right? And uh, they come up with this little agreement and they're like, okay, we're gonna pray. And whoever's God sends fire down from heaven to consume this sacrifice on the altar, that's the real God and everybody's gonna serve him. Sounds good, sounds good. So the prophets of Baal, they're like, we'll go first. And the Bible says that they weep and they wail and they pray for 12 hours straight on the top of a mountain. Now, listen to me. I'm a pastor, okay? But I have never spent 12 hours in prayer consecutively in my entire life. That's just like, that's too much even for me. And yet these guys prayed 12 hours. Oh, Baal, hear us. Send fire. Here we are. Don't ignore us. Send fire. On and on and on for 12 hours. Eventually, Elijah's like, you guys, like, I got to go have dinner. And so he steps up. He steps up and he prays a two-sentence prayer. It takes about seven seconds to say. And immediately, the fire of God falls from heaven. 12 hours couldn't do it. Seven seconds could. Acts chapter number nine, Peter, one of Jesus' original followers. Uh, Jesus, at this point, has already been crucified. He's ascended into heaven. And uh, Peter is standing at the, side, uh, the bedside of a young girl who's died, very tragically. And he's standing there. And the Bible says that he reaches out and he places his hand on her. And he prays a three-word Three words, and the girl is raised to life. We jump back into the Old Testament. There's a, another prophet named Elisha, not Elijah. No wonder the Bible seems confusing. It's like we're using the same names. Anyway, Elisha, there's this time where he's got his servant, and they're scared because the enemies are attacking them, and what are we going to do sort of thing. And so Elisha prays a one-sentence prayer, and the eyes of his servant are open to see angels all around them guarding and protecting them. Think about the thief on the cross. He's next to Jesus. He says one sentence to Christ. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And instantly his eternity is transformed. Even if we take the Lord's prayer, probably the most famous prayer in the Bible, it's less than 30 seconds to recite it as it's written. Prayers in the Bible are so much shorter than we tend to realize. And that should remind us that short prayers really can be powerful prayers if we let them. Here in Matthew chapter number six, Jesus is reminding us that there is no correlation between the length of a prayer and the power that's behind it. You could pray for an hour if you want to and get nothing out of it. You could say three words and transform somebody's life. Jesus tells us that 15 honest words are better than 500 eloquent ones. 
God is not looking for long-winded, wordy, repetitive prayers. He doesn't ask for, you know, flowery King James English. He doesn't, you know, you don't have to drop your voice like, oh God, I come to thee today to beg thine mercies upon my family. He He doesn't ask for any of that. And according to Jesus here, he certainly doesn't want his children to come back begging him again and again and again. Why? Because all of those things, like thinking I got to get the language just right, or I got to get the place and the setting just right, or I got to, you know, thinking that we have to dial it in just right, that actually betrays a lack of trust in God. It betrays a lack of trust in God. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, if I'm praying, if I'm so concerned that I'm doing it right and I want to honor God and I want to give, like, a good amount of time to this, you know, like, how could that betray a lack of trust in God? And the answer is, when we pray these long, repetitive prayers, we're hoping that God is going to see one of two things. You ready? We're hoping that either God is going to see that we're desperate That's the first thing. It's like, oh God, like my situation is so dire. I'm so desperate. I'm so pitiful down here. You know how badly I need you. You've got a healer. Please show up. This is getting bad. You got, ah, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to turn. The deadline is coming. They're saying the money is due and I don't have it. God, where are you? And why aren't you listening to me? We sound like the prophets of Baal running around for 12 hours trying to get God's attention. We think that we can communicate to God that we are very, very desperate in our situation. And God's going to look at us and say, oh, you're so pitiful. It's so sad. Okay, I guess I'll come through. And what happens is our prayers shift to trying to convince God that he should come through for us, that we deserve an answer because of how desperate we feel. Or the other thing that we usually try to do when we get caught in this like long-winded, repetitive kind of style of prayer, we may not be trying to convince him of our desperation. We try to convince him of our devotion. And so I've heard people that have prayed things along the lines of, now, God, I really, my sister needs healing. And so as somebody who has served you faithfully for years, God, as somebody who who signed up for the dream team, God, I served. God, you remember, I honor you in everything. I pray before meals at the restaurant when everybody can see me. Lord, you know I gave in the offering that one time. You know, and we come to him and we try to convince him that we're deserving. Okay, are you with me now? We approach prayer and our, our, the, the motivation or what we're trying to communicate in the moment through our prayers is, God, I'm really desperate. You gotta show up. Or God, you know, I'm devoted and I kind of deserve this. So let's make it happen, right? But God does not answer our prayers based on our desperation or our devotion. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter number six? He says uh, that, that God knows exactly what you need before you even ask. You don't have to convince God that you're desperate. He sees how desperate you already are. Your, your desperation is real, okay? I know you're not manufacturing it, and so does God. He already sees it. He's aware that the deadline is looming. He has seen how faithfully you have served him. He knows what your motives are. So there's no need to try to convince him of those things because God does not answer prayers based on our desperation or our devotion. He has a different Uh, criteria in mind. And in fact, before we even move on to what what he actually answers our prayers based on, let me just tell you, if God answered our prayers based on desperation, 
he'd have to say yes to everybody. Because like everybody who prays is desperate, you know? It's like, usually the only time we pray is when we're really desperate. And so if God was like, okay, your situation is really bad, I guess I'll come through. Like all of us are in bad situations. All of us are desperate. All of us don't know what else to do. So that can't be the criteria that God uses. And it can't be based on devotion or deserving either because then prayer becomes transactional, right? It's like, I scratched your back, God. Now it's time for you to scratch mine. I did my part, you do your part. I put in the right inputs, now I get the right outputs. But God is not a vending machine, okay? God does not answer our prayers based on desperation or devotion. The criteria is a little bit different. And the criteria, the reason that short prayers are powerful and the the thing that God is really looking for from us when we pray is revealed in Luke chapter number 18. Now, in each message of this Praying with Fire series, what we've been doing is we've been taking an example of a prayer that's recorded in the scripture, one that's interesting, one that was dynamic or powerful, and we've kind of been examining it. And we're like, why is it so interesting? And what made it powerful and dynamic? What can we learn from it? What is God trying to teach us? And we're going to do the same thing today, except we're going to cover two prayers today. It's a two for one deal when you come to church here, okay? Last week, we talked about the prayer of Jabez, and I told you that was like the most selfish prayer in the entire Bible, but that's okay because God blessed it. He answered it with a yes, and so sometimes it is okay to pray selfish prayers within reason. Today, though, we're going to move from the most selfish prayer in the Bible to talk about the ugliest prayer in the Bible. And I don't mean ugliest in the like, oh God, I need you. It's not like an ugly cry kind of thing. It's ugly in the, ooh, that's not a good look for you, bro. Like that kind of prayer, okay? Look at what Luke 18 says. I love this so much. Luke chapter number 18. We'll start reading in verse number nine, and then we'll pick it up here on the screen in verse 10. Uh, Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. That's the setting for this story. Verse 10, he says, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. Now, we might stop for just a moment, say, what the heck is a Pharisee? A Pharisee was a religious leader in the first century. They were super like religious. They followed every single rule in the Old Testament, like hundreds of them. They wanted to be known as religious people. They had a lot of respect in their society because like they were very disciplined people, but they were also kind of obnoxious. Are you with me? I know some Christians like this. It's like they do the right things, but they want everybody to see that they're doing the right things, okay? So the Pharisee has a good reputation. He goes to church, which is where you would expect the Pharisee to go. So that's guy number one here in the story. But the other, the second man that went to church to pray was a despised tax collector. Now you might think to yourself like, why was he despised? Actually, we've got the CRA here. You guys know why he was despised, okay? Uh, No, just kidding. It's different. It's different. Okay, here's what you need to know. So in the first century, Israel, which is the, the country where this took place, had been invaded and occupied by the Roman Empire, right? They did to Israel what they did to like the whole Mediterranean world. And so the Israelites were living under foreign military occupation. And as a part of that occupation, every single individual was required to pay taxes and duties to the emperor of Rome. And so what the Romans did was they hired local Jewish men to go around and collect the tribute tax from all of the Jewish people. So you can imagine if you're Jewish, you're like, I don't want these guys in charge of my country. They're a foreign invading force. And then I have to give them my money and they're pagans and they don't like us and we don't like them. And my neighbor is going to collect money for them from me. 
Uh-uh. If you were a tax collector in that day, you were seen as a traitor to your country and to your people. Every single tax collector was a despised person in the first century. So Jesus sets up this story and he says, two men go to the temple and pray. One of them is a very religious Pharisee and the other is a despised tax collector. So they get to the temple and they start praying. The Bible tells us this, the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed this prayer, if you can call it that. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I thank you, God. I'm certainly not like that tax collector over there. He says, I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. Not a good look, buddy. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not lift his eyes to heaven. And he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow. He said, oh God, be merciful to me for I'm a sinner. Now, if we pause right there. I'm like, I know you've already seen how the story is spoiled here, okay? But if we were to pause right there, if you were in the crowd in the first century listening to Jesus teach that, you'd be thinking to yourself, oh, well, the Pharisee is the one who got prayer right. Like he's devoted his life to prayer and spiritual things. And like he knows the law. This other guy has turned his back on the faith. He's turned his back on his people. And you know, he's lucky that he didn't burst into flames the second he walked into the temple. That's what we would expect. But Jesus subverts, he inverts our expectations. And he ends up saying this, I tell you the truth, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. Hmm. So you got two men that go to the temple. One of them relies on his resume. He says, God, look at everything I've done for you. And if we're real, he's got a solid track record. This dude would have made a good dream teamer. Are you with me? Like, he re- this was a good guy. He did a lot of right things. However, he's missing something incredibly important. And what he's missing is revealed by his prayer. And as it turns out, this thing that he's missing, but the tax collector possesses, is precisely what God is looking for when we pray. What is it? It's dependence. Dependence. God does not answer prayers based on our desperation or our devotion. God answers prayers based on our dependence on him. It's really clear that the, um, that the uh, Pharisee in this story, he doesn't need anything. Are you with me? Like his prayer is like, thank you, God, that I've got my life all together. Thank you that I don't do stupid things. Thank you that I've always made the right choice. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm a good guy. Everybody else is not a good guy. And what he's revealing in this prayer is independence from God. He doesn't need God. He's got it figured out. He doesn't need God for anything because everything seems to be going right for him. His prayer sounds like it has some level of dependence on God. But what Jesus reveals is that he's basically proclaiming his independence from God. You see that? The most religious guy in the story is the one who's actually independent of God. His independence is an arrogance that separates him from God. His prayer is nothing more than a, thank you, I'm better than everybody else. Now compare this with the tax collector. The, the, the tax collector, we're told, stood at a distance. Oh, this is so good. Like, this is part of the reason I love the Bible. Come to the How to Read the Bible seminar this Saturday, you guys. Like, they will teach you to, to pick out little details like this, okay? Um, if you pay really close attention, let's put the verse back on the screen a sec. If you pay really close attention, what it says is, 
The Pharisee stood by himself. The tax collector stood at a distance. There's something to that. The Pharisee, he probably walked right down to the front of the altar. You know what I'm saying? He was close. He was right where he needed to be. But it also points out that he stood separated from everybody else. Like even in his posture in this moment, he's proclaiming his independence. I'm not like all these other people. I'm close, but I'm not with them. The tax collector, on the other hand, he is far, hello, he's far away. He won't even get close the scripture tells us that he, he won't even lift his eyes to God. He beats his chest. And rather than talking about how good he is or how desperate his situation is, he just says, God, I need you to be merciful to me because I know deep down inside I'm a sinner. He expresses complete dependence on God. He demonstrates humility and his focus is on God's character, not his own situation or his achievements. And so as a result... Jesus says that he goes home justified while the Pharisee does not. Now that, that phrase justified, it means to be in a right relationship with God. It means to have God's blessing on you. So the guy who everybody said was like scum of the earth and far from the father went home with God's blessing, right with his father. And the guy who had all the outer looks of somebody who would be close to God and have his blessing, went home without it. And it all turned on how they prayed. One relied on his resume and his devotion. The other was dependent on God. So how does this play out, like in our lives today? I mean, if you really grabbed a hold of this, this would change the way that you approach prayer. Because if you're just on, like, it takes stock, Think about the prayers that you normally pray. You probably fall into one of those two camps that, that we have highlighted here on the screen. You either pray out of desperation. God, you've got to come through. It's just like, what's going to happen? I don't know. It. Ah. You pray out of desperation or you pray out of devotion. God, you know who I am. You know what I've done. And so I'm just going to put that out there and you do you. It's okay. I trust you sort of thing. And, and in truth, none of us would be like as overt as any of that. But in reality, both of those approaches are going to lead to a fruitless prayer life. They are going to lead to frustration when you talk to God. Instead, what we want to do is we want to communicate our dependence on him. There's, um, man, this morning, uh, one of our church members sent me a message, and he said, hey, my son, Zach, is in the hospital this morning. He woke up with an appendicitis. And so, like, it's emergency surgery, you know. And so I'm talking with his dad, Darren. And many of you know Darren. He spoke to Five for Five a while back. Anyway, um, so I'm talking with Darren. Darren's like, it's just so hard, you know, because, like, I, I see my son, and he's laying there, and he's in pain. And, like, he could die from this if they, you know, can't do anything, which, of course, I mean, they will. He's probably going to be fine. But anyway, you know what I'm saying? Like, as a parent, he's freaking out. And what I'm trying to communicate to him is, hey, look, Darren, don't, don't get so, don't let yourself think that because your situation is desperate, then God will show up. And, and Darren, you serve faithfully at our church, buddy. I love that. I appreciate about that about you. But God's not going to answer your prayer either just because you're devoted or deserving. God is going to answer your prayer if you confess and express your dependence on him in the moment. God, we're dependent on you. So listen, I'm even asking you to join me in praying for Zach this morning as he goes through surgery and all those different things. Like we are dependent on God to show up in these sorts of situations. Do you see how knowing that changes your mindset and maybe even the words you use when you pray. Dependence, not desperation or devotion. So let me give you three thoughts, kind of takeaways from this. 
how you can apply these truths from uh, Jesus' story here in Luke 18 to your own prayer life. First, remind yourself that short prayers can be powerful prayers. I know you're like, dude, you already said that at the top of the message. Like now you're just repeating yourself. Can we wrap this up and I can go to lunch? I get it, I get it. But I think we really need to highlight this. We need to dig in just a tiny bit because we have a tendency to think that for a prayer to be effective, it's gotta be first thing in the morning during a planned out quiet time where we've got 15 minutes to like devote to this specific request. That way I can show God that I'm really, really serious, okay? It's like, that's the sort of prayer that we believe God is. He's like, wow, look at them. They like got alone. It's first thing in the morning. They like, they, they've scheduled this. They've spent time in this. They're serious. I love it. Okay, I'll answer the request. We have that idea, but in actuality, I believe praying shorter prayers throughout the day will actually bear more fruit in your life. That's actually a better way to pray than, all right, I'm about to step on somebody's toes. That's a better way to pray than scheduling 15 minutes for God. Like, uh, there are a lot of us that are like, dude, if I had 15 minutes of solid prayer time every single day, I would feel like a spiritual all-star. Are you kidding me? Like, that's awesome, right? And when somebody says, yeah, I, I, I've got 15 minutes, start every day before I go to work, before I get in traffic and people tick me off, I go to Jesus and I ask him to bless me and help me. And I'm like, that's awesome. 15 minutes. What about the other minutes of the day? You with me? It's like, we can't confine our prayer lives to one small section of our schedule. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put God into the same block that I put my coworkers into, you know? It's like, I got 15 minutes after lunch. That's your time. If you want it, you can have it. I'm not gonna do that to God because that's not real communication. That's not helpful. Instead, we should be praying these little prayers throughout the day. If we did that, if you were to like in the moment, invite God with a one sentence or a two sentence prayer into your situation, into your decisions, into your difficulties, into your desperation, into your celebration. If in the moment you said, God, I need you to give me some patience right now because I'm about to lose it. If you said in the moment, God, I need a yes from this person. If you said, God, you gave me a yes from this person and now I thank you for it. If you were to pray one or two sentence prayers, Throughout the day, that would bear more fruit for you. It would make prayer more enjoyable for you than trying to schedule a perfect little Instagrammable quiet time. There are a couple of reasons why I think this is the better way to pray. Why like praying smaller prayers throughout the day is better than a monologue tomorrow morning. There are a few reasons why. The first is because doing it this way really does keep us connected to God. And God wants us to stay connected to him. In John chapter number 15, Jesus tells us this. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. To, to abide or to remain, it means to stay connected to. You know, I, I feel like a lot of times we look at our prayer lives or our spiritual lives and it's kind of like, okay, I'm going to start my first, the first part of the day I'm giving to God. And that is going gonna, gonna to charge up my battery. I'm going to be at 100% by the time I disconnect. It's like your cell phone, you know? In the, in the morning it's connected and it's at a hondo and then you unplug it and throughout the day it just starts losing and winding up. And that's how it is. Like spiritually, we're like, okay, I'm going to start. I'm at 100 with God. My spiritual life is like, 
at a high and then I got to go deal with people and difficulties and it's just like I get so drained. And then tomorrow morning, I, I plug back in in my quiet time and then I'm recharged. And it's like this 24-hour cycle. We do this with our weeks as well where it's like, okay, I go to church on Sunday and I get like super hyped. I get filled. The worship really fills me up. The preaching's helpful. I leave believing I could charge hell with a water pistol. I am ready to go. And then Monday happens and Tuesday happens and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And by the time I drag myself back in, my battery's in the red like I'm at 3% and barely making it. Can I tell you, my battery don't get below 95% when it comes to my, converse, my relationship with God. Why? Because I don't schedule time with him that way. I have time with him throughout the day. I'm constantly talking to God constantly having short prayers, constantly in communion and relationship and connection. Can you imagine if me and my wife, if we said, okay, we're going to have a 30 minute scheduled conversation every day, but that's going to be the extent of our talk. So like, don't talk to me outside of the 30 minutes when we're on the calendar. Okay. Now there are some that are like, actually 30 minutes with my husband of like face-to-face -face conversation, that would be a step forward. I get it. I get it. I get it. But imagine if that's it, if that's all you had, there would not be healthy communication and the relationship would not be healthy. And yet many of us take that same approach with God. We're like, God, I'm going to give you 15, 30 minutes. That's your time. And then the other time I got to handle my business. All right. That is not the basis of healthy communication. God doesn't want you to just schedule one tiny little block and act like you've done your job. He wants you to converse with him. God wants his conversation with his children to be frequent and familiar to be real and organic, to, to be a part of the everyday life that you're living. So uh, first, it keeps us connected to God. Second, praying short prayers like this throughout the day, it does demonstrate a dependence, uh, a dependence on and confidence in God. See, when I, I pray these short prayers, I am reminding myself again and again that I am dependent on God for everything. There in John chapter 15, verse 5, you might have noticed I actually didn't read the last sentence of that verse, and uh, I wasn't ignoring it. Um, because I don't like it. Um, I mean, I was waiting because I want to highlight it. Jesus says, you're the vine, I'm the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I mean, I, that seems like a bold statement because if I'm honest, um, I, I feel like I did a lot of stuff today without Jesus. I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like Jesus didn't help me brush my teeth. And um, I got in the car and I drove myself here without killing myself or anybody else. I seem to do that just fine by myself. Uh, I can schedule 15 minutes to read the Bible every morning. Uh, I don't need Jesus constantly telling me, you know, that's what needs to happen. Like I said, I'm a grown man. I can take care of myself kind of thing, right? But you got to really, what is he saying there? When he says, apart from me, apart from God, essentially, you can do nothing, what he's saying is at the most fundamental level, the reason that you're able to do anything at all is because of God's grace. You didn't wake yourself up this morning and neither did Siri. God woke you up this morning. It is only because of God's grace that my body is working right now. It is only because of God's goodness and blessing on my life that I can earn a paycheck. The only way I'm ever going to do anything meaningful with my existence is through God. Apart from God, I can do nothing, nothing. Keep the lights on. I can't do it apart from him. <laughs> so when I pray, I'm confessing my dependence and my trust in the one who makes it all possible anyway. 
We're going to circle back to that in just a moment. Oh, and by the way, I should just mention real quick, like, I don't want anybody to walk out here with the wrong idea. I'm not saying that, like, having a morning quiet time and reading your Bible and having extended prayer sessions with God and stuff has no value. You should do those things. They shouldn't be your primary form of prayer, okay? So, like, do them, yeah, but also have conversations with God throughout the rest of the time as well. Okay, so first, uh, short prayers can be powerful prayers. Second, please know everyone can pray with fire. Everyone can pray with fire. You don't have to have a big, long spiritual resume to pray and get an answer from God. Sometimes having a big, long spiritual resume will get in the way of getting an answer from God. The tax collector was seen as one of the people in their society who was furthest from God, and yet God blessed him and answered his prayer. And the Pharisee, the one who should have had every reason to expect his prayer to be answered, God said no to. If we went around the room today, And we said, okay, who do you believe is most likely to have their prayers answered in the room? You'd say, well, probably you as the pastor, some of the other staff maybe, I don't know, a dream teamer. There's probably some sweet little lady that's just so close to Jesus. And so I'm sure that she's most likely to get her prayers answered. But the entire point of Jesus' story here is that people just like you can get a yes from God. You don't need to have it all figured out. You don't need to have a divinity degree. You don't need to have reverend in front of your name. All you need to do is pray out of dependence on your father in heaven and he'll give you a yes. That's mind-blowing, you guys. That is so great. It's such good news. And and the reason why is this. I don't have time to develop this thought, so I'm just going to say it and we're going to move on. When we pray with fire... The power comes from God's resume, not ours. Comes from God's resume, not ours. Chew on that for a little bit. Okay, so I'm just saying, like, if you're here and and the devil's in your ear and he's saying, you know, God won't answer your prayer, remember the words of Jesus in Luke 18. Uh, Tell the devil he's the only person that's not welcome at Connect Church this morning, okay? Like, leave you alone. That's not true. God answers the prayers of people who are dependent on him, not just those who are devoted or desperate. Okay, finally, uh, we, we have to depend on God to meet our spiritual needs, okay, our spiritual needs. We have a tendency in our prayers to focus on God um, providing or delivering in the physical realm. So we ask him for things like health, or we ask him for like the opportunity to travel, or we ask him for more money, or we ask him for a new car, you know, whatever. We ask God to bless and to provide in the physical realm. If you're like, if you pay attention, the majority of your prayers will be like, God, give me stuff. Second kind of prayer you're going to pray is more emotional and relational. And you're going to say, God, bless my marriage, bless my kids, bless my relationship with my dad. I've really been struggling. So help me in that. And then like, if there's any time left, we might pray for some spiritual stuff. But from God's perspective, the spiritual stuff is what really matters. Do you know that the emotional, relational, physical, financial blessings that God might provide to you, those are secondary. That's the icing on the cake. The good stuff is having God deal with, address, and meet your true spiritual needs. You can get all of this other stuff, but if the spiritual does not get lined out right, None of that is going to matter. There was a time in which Jesus was teaching and he said, what would it profit a man or a woman to gain the entire world, but to forfeit their own soul? What, would it, what benefit would it be 
for God to say yes to every physical prayer, every emotional prayer, every relational, every financial, and then for you never to have him meet your spiritual needs, it would be wasted. I want us to go back here, Luke 18, and I want to focus on the prayer that the, the um, tax collector actually prayed, okay? His prayer was this, oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. Now, that is a short and powerful prayer. And you might be here this morning and you're looking at that and you're thinking to yourself, well, that was probably a good prayer for him. Maybe he was a sinner. Maybe he did need God's mercy. That was probably the right prayer for him. I don't really feel that way. I don't really need God's mercy. I don't really feel like I've done a lot to ask forgiveness for, so I'm not gonna bother. That's not me. Careful now. You're starting to sound more like the Pharisee. And the Pharisee was not the hero of the story. The hero was this guy who prayed this one sentence powerful prayer. And I think the reason that it was so powerful is because he's actually asking God to address his spiritual need his need for forgiveness, his need for redemption, his need for new life, new hope, a, a restored relationship with God. Pay, contrast his prayer with the prayer of the, uh, the Pharisee. And the Pharisee was all phys- like, look at me, look at what I did, look at what I do. But this guy's praying over the spiritual things. And I just believe deep down in my soul, the reason that he went home blessed, he went home justified before God is because he prayed that God would meet his spiritual need. And this prayer, it doesn't just become a good example like of the types of stuff that you and I should be praying. This prayer is actually what you and I should be praying. Do you realize that? If you've never prayed, God, I know I'm not perfect. I know I've hurt people, I've let them down. If you've got rules, I'm sure I've broken a few of them. God, I just need you to be merciful to me because if I'm honest, I know I'm a sinner. If you've never prayed that, do you realize it doesn't matter if God gives you everything else. In the end, you're gonna say it wasn't enough. This is what I really needed. This is what you were placed here for. If you allow God to meet this spiritual need, to forgive you, to redeem you, to give you new life, new hope, then all this other stuff you get as a result, it's a wonderful blessing, but this is what really matters. And so I'm just gonna ask everybody in the room, bow your heads, close your eyes, because I believe there's somebody here today and you say, I I need to pray that prayer. I I don't even know everything it means. Like, let me tell you something, guys. I prayed this prayer when I was 17 years old and these eight or nine words changed my life. The most powerful prayer I ever prayed. Like at my church, we didn't even have like a fancy version of the sinner's prayer. My youth pastor got me down on my knees and I said, oh God, be merciful to me for I'm a sinner. And that prayer changed everything for me and it can change everything for you as well. So, hey, listen, this is just not a bad prayer to pray every single day. So why don't we all say this together? Ready? Oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. God, I thank you that when we come to you and confess our spiritual dependence, that God, you meet us at our place of need. And Lord, you rescue us, you forgive us, you cleanse us, you make it God as if we had never stepped off the path in the first place 
through Jesus and his sacrificial death on the cross. So we bless you and we say thank you. And I pray, God, that as we, as we pray in the days to come, that, God, we would express our dependence on you, that, God, we would come to you with full confidence in your goodness, in your ability to provide for your children. And, Lord, help us not to relegate our, our conversation to just one small portion of the day, but, Lord, help us to, to commune with you every single moment in such a way that keeps us abiding, connected, remaining in you. I believe that's your desire for us, and that is the way to life overflowing. So thank you, God, and I pray that you'd bless the reading of your word in Jesus' name. Amen.